It's good to be back with you. My name is Chris, one of the pastors here at Bethany. Last Sunday, my wife and I and our middle son, Ben, uh, we were in North Carolina for a wedding. Uh, I know Pastor Adam mentioned that from the stage, and uh, it was a beautiful wedding. Uh, One thing I'd share with you about it, uh, I was told that that during the ceremony and the the reception that there was rain all around where we were, but there was not rain where we were. And so I know that the, the bride and groom were excited about that. It was a little windy. Uh, But we can work through wind, and my voice, I guess, projected well enough that everybody could hear me. But it's good to be back with you. Now, uh, Adam was in Hebrews chapter 4 last week, uh, if you've been here and you've been following along. And one of the things uh, that he did last week, I just want to assure you, uh, is not going to happen from me. Um, I I hesitate to say never, because never is a long time. Uh, But I was listening to the message on Tuesday, I believe it was, uh, just trying to catch up and see what it was that he had talked about. And at the end of that message, he sings, Jesus loves me, if any of you were here for that. Now, the, the difference probably was that when he was doing that, you could hear each other singing. But as I was listening to it on the recording, all I hear is him singing. Okay, so now I know that I am not going to uh, put myself out there like that. He, God bless him. He's, he's doing what he needs to do. He's being a fool for Jesus, and that's good. But I, am, uh, I just want to assure you, I am not going there this morning, all right? So maybe at another time. You never know how the Holy Spirit's going to lead, but uh, not this morning, I don't think. So anyway, we're in Hebrews chapter 4, uh, going to be... Starting in verse 12, we'll read it together here in a second. Uh, If you're following along with us in the uh, known journal, that's page 22 we're going to be on this morning. Uh, If you don't know what this is, this is our reading journal, reading plan. You can follow along with us throughout the week. Uh, If you'd like one of these, they are free from us to you if you're going to use it. You walk out these doors to the right there on the shelf there. Uh, We'll be in page 22 this morning. So Hebrews chapter 4. And if you don't have a Bible and you need one, uh, page uh, 1011, I believe, in the pews uh, there in front of you, you will find a Bible. And if you don't own a Bible and you want one, that's our gift from us to you. You may have it. Gladly take it home and read it. So here we go. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. Let's jump in. For the word of God, that's what we're reading, the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow, and it exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes, and he is the one to whom we are accountable So, verse 14, so then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours, Jesus, understands our weaknesses, for he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy, and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. Every high priest is a man chosen to represent other people in their dealings with God. He presents their gifts to God and offers sacrifices for their sins, verse 2. And he is able to deal gently with ignorant and wayward people because he himself is subject to the same weakness. That is why he must offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as theirs. 
And no one can become a high priest simply because he wants such an honor. He must be called by God for this work, just as Aaron was. If you don't know who Aaron was, Aaron was Moses, Moses' brother. And that is why Christ did not honor himself by assuming he could become high priest. No, he was chosen by God who said to him, you are my son today, I have become your father. And in another passage, God said to him, you are a priest forever in the order of, and that name is Melchizedek. Verse 7, while Jesus was here on earth, he offered prayers and pleadings with a loud cry and tears to the one who could rescue him from death. And God heard his prayers because of his deep reverence for God. Even though Jesus was God's son, he learned obedience from the things he suffered. In this way, God qualified him as a perfect high priest, and he became the source, singular, the source of our eternal salvation for all those who obey him. And God designated him to be a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. So we're going to jump back here to verse 4. We're going to go through this uh, together, not line by line, but we're going to break down some of this. And I like the way we laid this out because of how uh, the end of 4 leads into 5. I guess I should like it because I was the one who helped lay it out, uh, but I will... I'll illustrate this for you because I think verses 12 and 13 present this tremendously scary uh, realization for me. And I don't know if you share this, but let's, let's look at it together. So it says in, in verse 12 of chapter 4, for the word of God is alive. All right, one thing I would note for you here is that the word of God is inspired. Right? The Holy Spirit, as the author of Hebrews was writing this, the Holy Spirit was inspiring him, giving him the words to write down on the pages. And now as we read it 2,000 years later, the Holy Spirit is illuminating those words, bringing those words to our attention that we would see them. And this is when we are plugged in and reading his word. I would make that observation or that point. Because I don't know if you're like me, but there have been times in my life, probably more times than not, that I have sat down to read the Word of God, maybe with a cup of coffee or something like that. In the morning, I read the Word of God, I go on about my day, and it's probably no more than 10 minutes later that I could tell you perhaps the passage I was reading, but nothing of any value as to why I was reading it or what it meant to me. And maybe that's happened to you as well. But I think when we really plug in and God is doing work in our hearts, that the, the words stick out. They, they maybe they, we mull over them for some time during the day. And that's what this is saying, that the word of God is alive. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow, and it exposes our innermost thoughts. So one of the ways I like to say this is as we're reading the word of God and we're plugged into the word of God, the word of God is reading me. It's reading me. I'm beginning to see things that I didn't maybe see in myself. So, for instance, in Philippians, one of the passages says, look not out, look not out to the interest of yourselves, but also to the interest of others. And as I read that, I think, boy, how did I do with that today? Because I have been so consumed with what I want, what I'm thinking, my agenda, my plan in that day. And the word of God tells me that I'm not supposed to think of my own interests, but also to the interests of everyone else. Or you go on to a passage like uh, Ephesians 5, verse 3, that says, Let there be no hint of sexual immorality in your life. Think back through your day. Think about the thoughts you processed, the things you watched. What did you put into your heart and into your mind? What were you thinking about? And could that be said of you? No hint of sexual immorality. You keep going. And there's other things like James chapter 3 where it says, The tongue is a restless evil full of deadly poison. And with it we praise God like we just did. So we sing these songs of praise, these worship songs. And we praise God and with it we curse men. 
So as we leave this place, as we're driving away and someone pulls out in front of us in traffic, what are the words that we're going to say? Or when our children are in the back throwing a fit because they're hungry and lunch isn't ready in time or we're not going out to eat, what are we saying to them? What are the words that are coming out of our mouth? With it we praise God and with it we curse men. And so there's other passages like be self-controlled. How many of us are self-controlled in every area of our lives? And think about it. We, we think about this in areas where uh, it's easier to think of sin, like alcohol or things like that. But what about things like coffee? Are we self-controlled in our consumption of coffee? Are we self-controlled in the amount of food that we eat? You know, when we're, we're stressed out, do we run to food? Do we binge eat? But the Word of God says we're supposed to be self-controlled. And so as I read these things, all of a sudden I'm like, ah, I want to close it. I don't want to keep reading it because God's exposing in me all of this weakness, all of this sin, all of the things that I would rather not show any of you or rather not know about even of myself. And so as I read it, that's scary. And it gets even scarier. Go into verse 13. Well, the end of 12, it exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes. And he, he is the one to whom we are accountable. So now God is seeing everything. He knows our thoughts. And this, is, this to me is like a bad dream. Can you imagine, just for a second, imagine with, with me that you knew somebody in your life, someone in your sphere of influence that could read your mind. So when you are in their presence around them, they can read every thought that's going through your mind. Would you want to stay close to that person? If you're like me, I would want to move as far from that person as I could, right? Because they would see all of the ugliness that goes on in my brain that none of you can see. Praise Jesus. But all of those thoughts... The innermost, the, 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 the darkest, deepest stuff within us, they could see that. I think all of us would run. And this is like a bad dream because God's saying, hey, guess what? I see it all. Nothing in all of creation is hidden from me. I see all your thoughts. It's all exposed to me. And at this point, I am, it's scary to me. Now, I want to make one point here. That's aside from the main point, but I think it's important. Most pastors, most preachers, most theologians, they run to the negative on this passage. But that's not exactly what the Holy Spirit's saying. Notice the Holy Spirit or God is telling us nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything's naked and exposed. And I think we run to the negative because it says to whom we are accountable. But I also wanted to illustrate that God catches those glimpses of all that we have for him in our life. God sees those. And we might not even know how to express it. Like I said, last week I was, or last weekend I was down in North Carolina, Outer Banks, beautiful place to have a wedding. And I was sitting on the beach. I believe it was probably Saturday because Saturday was the nicest day we were down there. And I'm looking out over the ocean. The sun is in the sky. The sky is blue. And I'm looking out over the ocean and I'm just in awe of God. Have you been there before? Has there ever been a moment where the, the, the creation has just caught your attention? And God sees that. God sees that glimpse of all that I have in my heart. And I'm sitting there thinking, man, God, you told this vast ocean that is so much bigger than I am. You told the ocean that it could only go to this point and it had to stop. And you're a God who loves me. That, God catches that. Okay, So I want to encourage you in that, that we don't just look negative here, but we also think about the fact that God sees even those glimpses of all uh, within the brokenness of our lives. So I make this point again, and if you're taking notes, you can put it down. God sees and knows everything about us. Now, the vulnerability of verses 12 and 13, the vulnerability of God knowing every thought, 
I think, illuminates the beauty of verses 13 and, or 14 through 16. So let's look at this together, verses 14 through 16. So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven. Well, who is this high priest? He's Jesus, the Son of God. Now, you might ask, what is the, a high priest? What does a priest do? If you're not churched, if you didn't grow up in the church, you're not familiar with what a priest is. A priest, all they were was a mediator between God and man. That's what they did. In the Old Testament system, the way God had set it up, the Day of Atonement would come. You and your family would gather together whatever it is, the sacrifice, probably a lamb. You might have to go out and buy that lamb, and you would travel to the tabernacle or the temple, and you would come to the priest, and you would say, we're offering this lamb as a sacrifice for our sins. And the the priest would have offered sacrifices for his own sin, and then he would go and offer this sacrifice to God on behalf of you, and that's what the priest did. Did And so remember when I laid out this, if you weren't here for it, when I laid out the book of Hebrews, the writer in the book of Hebrews is writing to a group of Jewish Christians, okay? Jewish people who would have been bought into that Old Testament system. That's the way they would have functioned. And now what he's writing to them is and saying, you don't need that priest anymore because Jesus is your high priest. You don't need to go offer sacrifices anymore because Jesus was the sacrifice. So it's important that we understand that. So that's what he's pointing out here. And he says, let us hold firmly to what we believe. Verse 15, this high priest of ours understands our weakness for he faced all of the same testings that we did. Or that we do. He did not sin, and yet he did not sin. So Jesus, in his humanity, can sympathize with our weaknesses because he experienced it. Jesus knows what it is to be tired. Jesus knows what it is to be angry. Jesus knows what it is to be betrayed by a friend. Jesus knows what temptation feels like. Now I want to point out to you, he does not, it, this does not say that every single temptation that we are going to face is the ones that Jesus faced directly, okay? Because we live in a world, technologically, that there are a lot of temptations in, in the world of technology that Jesus would not have faced because he was on the earth 2,000 years ago. But the temptations of, of the root causes of those temptations, the pride of life, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, the root stuff, Jesus understands and knows, I want to point this out to you because one of the authors in scriptures writes about Jesus' temptation. Matthew, who's one of Jesus' disciples, writes about this in Matthew chapter 4. And I believe that this passage here in Matthew chapter 4 can be directly connected here, that Jesus understands our weakness. So let's go through what Jesus would have experienced. Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit to a desert. doesn't tell us what desert it was, it just says a desert. There he was tempted by the devil. So he's facing temptation. Jesus went without food for 40 days and 40 nights, and after that he was hungry. So Captain Obvious here fills us in that after 40 days and 40 nights he was hungry. I always find it interesting or funny that the author would put that in. So he was hungry, of course. 40 days, 40 nights tells us he was hungry. The devil came tempting him and said, If you are the Son of God, these stones, or tell these stones to be made into bread. And I think that Jesus could have responded this way. Who are you talking to? If I'm the son of God? Are you serious? I was there. I was the one who created this place. I was the one who set the foundation. I'm the one who made the stones. If I'm the son of God, excuse you? But he doesn't. He responds with the scripture. He comes back and he says, Jesus said, it is written, man, is not to live on bread alone. Man is to live by every word that God speaks. So Jesus quotes the Old Testament. 
And what Satan is trying to do here is Satan is trying to tempt him. All right, He's trying to make him uh, step outside of who he is and prove that he's the son of God. Jesus doesn't have to prove anything to anybody. And I think he's also, what the devil is also trying to do is trying to get uh, Jesus, he's trying to create a fracture in the Trinity, all right? Jesus trusts God the Father completely. And the devil is pointing out here, if you are the son of God, why are you hungry? Why has God left you in this desert to be hungry and thirsty? Is God really, and so see what it is, is God really a loving father to you? And you're the son of God, so just make some food for yourself. Just do it yourself. Then he goes on, the devil took Jesus up to Jerusalem, the holy city, and had Jesus stand on the highest part of the house of God, and the devil said to him, if, again questioning who he is, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, it is written. Throw yourself down, for it is written. And again, uh, the devil knows the Bible, okay? The devil knows the Bible. Here he's quoting a passage out of Psalms, and he says, he has told his angels to look after you. In their hands they will hold you up. Then your foot will not hit against the stone. Again saying, here's what it says in the scripture. If you're the son of God, you can jump off this mountain, and the angels will come, and they will pick you up, and then we will know that you are the son of God. But Jesus comes back, And he says to the devil, it is written, you must not tempt the Lord your God. At this point, I just want to make this point. It is important for us to memorize passages in Scripture. It's important for us to read the Word of God, be familiar with it, because the devil will come and he will tempt us. And guess what he will tempt us with? Exactly the same thing he tempts Jesus with, or he questions Jesus. If you are the Son of God, what the devil is going to question you about in your life is, are you sure you're a child of God? If you were a child of God, would you think that way? If you were a child of God, would you do that? You wouldn't do that if you were a child of God. You wouldn't have that, those thoughts, that life, that whatever it is. You fill in the blank. You know what the areas of weakness are. And you know after you fall in those areas of weakness, you know how you feel. You're questioning, am I really a child of God? And that's what the devil wants to do. See, he's questioning whose you are. And that's what he's doing to Jesus here. So again, the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain, and I think this is the greatest of the three. I think this is why Jesus saved this one, or sorry, the devil saved this one for last. Again, the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain, and he had Jesus look at all the nations of the world to see how great they were, and he said to Jesus, I will give you all these nations if you will get down at my feet and worship me. And here's what the devil was telling him, all right? He's saying for five seconds, you get down on the ground and you worship me, and there's no reason to go to the cross. There's no reason to have to go and die. There's no reason for that fracture between you and your father that will come. Because remember when Jesus was on the cross, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We're going to get to that in a little bit. But he's telling him, you don't have to do it. But see, all of temptation, well, let's finish this. Jesus answers him again with scripture. Jesus said to the devil, get away, Satan. It is written, you must worship the Lord your God. You must obey him only. And then the devil had to listen to him because he's the son of God. And so he left. He went away and the angels came and cared for him. The angels came and cared for him. But Satan will try to confuse us. Satan will try to make us forget whose we are. And the point that I was going to make about about Jesus here is that, that he had to go to the cross. He had to endure the cross. He had to go through that. And Satan was trying to short circuit that. And that's always how temptation comes. 
Temptation often comes in the form of a lie. And it's offering us something. It's always offering us something, some sort of gratification, but it always comes up far short on its delivery and it costs us more than we could ever measure. It costs us more than we expect. I'll give you an example of this. You think of on television, you see exercise, uh, that people are selling ex- or, uh, weight loss pills and things like that. And you, you see these advertisements, and it, it's humorous to me because they, they will come on and they will say, hey, listen, you don't have to change your lifestyle. You don't have to exercise more. You don't have to change what you're already eating. You can continue to eat what you're already eating. You just take this pill, and 30 days from now, you're going to look like this. And they always show this guy that's like completely carved out and looks totally ripped. And it, it's like, really? But see, what it's offering you is some short circuit because God designed our bodies this way. If we take in more calories than we burn, and the older we get, the more this happens, then we're going to put on weight. It's just the way God designed the body to function. You can't short-circuit it, but that's what these commercials are offering you. And all throughout our culture, this is what's happening. The devil has not changed his mind or his plan one bit in the last 2,000 years. He continues to lie to us this way. And I'll give you an example. The biggest lie that our culture has bought into, especially in the United States, but across the world, is that sex sex is just physical. It's merely a physical transaction. That's what the world has bought into. It's like shaking hands. Okay, It's just a physical transaction. But if that were true, if that were true, would our world have all the... the emotional impact that broken relationships has had. Many people have gone to see counselors because of broken relationships. There's pain and hurt there, especially when it was sexual and now it's broken. There's STDs, there's unwanted pregnancies, there's all of these things and the world is looking at it and saying, why does this happen? And we're trying to medicate it, we're trying to change it, but we can't. And the reason we can't is because God designed it this way. He said, Sex is something that happens between a man and a woman in a covenant relationship of marriage, and it can't be different. And if you try to do it differently, you're buying into a lie that the world is feeding you, and there will be pain, and there will be hurt, and it will cause things that you don't want to happen to you, and the loving God is the one who told us that. But we don't listen to him, and we listen to the world, and we listen to a lie, and we buy into that, and then we end up with the consequences, and we ask God why. The second one I would give you from our culture is gossip. Gossip. So we're hurt in some way. And we believe this lie that it's so much easier for us to go and vent to other people. Right? We're we're hurt by someone. Someone's offended us. And it's so much easier for us to go and find somebody to talk to. A friend, a sibling, mom and dad. And I'm not saying you shouldn't talk to other people. But here's the thing. If you want that relationship to be restored. If you want it to be what it was or what it could be then the only way, God's way, is for us to go and confront that person, to talk to that person. Now that's hard. It takes courage, right? It's so much easier for us to just vent and talk to somebody else that's going to look at us and say, yeah, you know, they were were wrong for saying that. They were wrong for doing that. How could you ever live with that person? You know, all of this other stuff. But what God's saying is if you want that relationship to be healed, you have to go to that person. It's what he told us. If someone sins against you, go and show them their fault. And if they won't listen to you, take a witness with you. But what happens is we get 10 years down the road or five years down the road and we're wishing that that relationship, especially in families, 
We're wishing those relationships were closer. We're wishing they were tighter. We're, we're wishing that we had something we didn't or don't have. And the reason we don't is because we never went back, all the way back, and confronted that sin back there. And you're still holding it in here. And they might not even be aware of it. See, and so God tells us, go, confront one another. It's going to be hard, but do it. Because the fruit that will come from it will be so much better. All right, so we don't have all morning to talk about temptation. So we're going to get back into Hebrews chapter 16 here because there's some really great stuff. So verse 16 of chapter 4. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive mercy, his mercy, and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. So let us come boldly. And the author gives us a definition here of who God is, our gracious God. Grace means unmerited favor. It means getting something we don't deserve. And notice the author said here, says here, we can come boldly. And so this is where this shows the beauty of what comes out of 12 and 13 is that God, the God who knows all of my thoughts, the God who sees every action, nothing is hidden from him, all of these things that are exposed to him, and yet he says that we can come boldly before him and we will find his grace. And we come boldly because we're not coming on our own merit. I'm not coming on my own merits as if I've earned something. I'm coming on the merits of Jesus Christ. I'm coming as a forgiven child of God because Jesus has purchased or redeemed me. So I come not on my own merit, but I come on his. And I can come boldly. I don't come arrogantly. I would make that point. Arrogance is coming expecting something. Expecting you owe me something, God. God, you, I deserve this. I should have this. That's not what the passage says. The passage says we can come boldly, all right, and we come boldly based on whose we are. My children will come to me with all kinds of requests. They will come and ask me all kinds of things. And sometimes I will say yes, sometimes I will say no. But they will always come and ask me why. Why do they come so boldly? Because they know whose they are. They know that I love them. They know that I care for them. They know that generally, most of the time, I am human, most of the time I want to hear from them. Right? So they know that. Well, the same is true with our Heavenly Father. We come because we are His. We can come boldly because we're His children. And see, that's what the devil wants us to believe is that we're not. And that's why he constantly asks us, if you are. That's why he's constantly pushing that at us. If you are a child of God, would you do that? So, I can approach God with confidence because Jesus understands my weakness. He understands what it is to be tempted. Jesus sympathizes with us in that. And so what does it say we'll find when we go there? So we're going to the throne of grace. We're going before God boldly. And what does it say we'll find? It says, there we will receive his mercy. That's a promise. We go before God boldly, we're going to receive his mercy. And the second thing is, we will find grace to help us when we need it most. So these are the things we find, grace and mercy. And I would ask, who, who in this room doesn't need more grace and mercy in their life? Which one of our neighbors, our coworkers, our spouses, our teachers, our bus drivers... And I mentioned this in the first service. I think bus drivers are the ones that need the most grace and mercy. But which one of us in life doesn't need more grace and mercy? And this is what God tells us, is that if we come to him boldly through Jesus, that we will receive mercy 
and we will find grace to help us. And it's when we come humbly, and I want to make this note here about humbly coming before God, approaching God through the person of Jesus Christ. It says that we will receive grace and mercy. mercy. And prayer, when we are coming to God, it shows something about our posture towards God. Humility. It shows a need for God. I need you, God. And so when we come and we pray and we ask humbly and in humility, he's responding to us. But there was a, there was a pastor and a theologian back in the 1800s. His name was P.T. Forsyth, and he wrote this about prayerlessness. Listen to what he says. Prayerlessness is the root of all sin. When we do not give time each day to earnest believing prayer, we are saying that we can cope with life without divine aid. So we can cope with life without God. To be prayerless is to be guilty of the worst form of practical atheism. So if you're a believer in Jesus, I would ask you, you've been given access to the throne of grace. Why wouldn't you use it? Why wouldn't you utilize that? This passage tells us if you're a believer in Jesus, you can come boldly before his throne. But I have an idea as to why we wouldn't. And I think maybe the idea here is why we don't, as you might argue, I've done that. But it didn't work. I've gone to God, I've gone praying and in tears and through my suffering and I've gone to him and I prayed and I prayed and I prayed that he would move that mountain and he didn't move it. I prayed that this would be taken out of my life and he didn't take it. Well, Jesus can sympathize with us because what I would tell you here is this passage doesn't promise that you will be relieved from a situation. This this passage promises us that you will have mercy and grace to get through the situation. I'll show you this. Let's jump down, verse 7 of chapter 5. While Jesus was here on earth, he offered prayers and pleadings with a loud cry and tears. I would make a note here that the source of our salvation, the Son of God, while he was on earth, spent time in prayer, all the more amplifying our need for prayer. And he did so with a loud cry and tears to the one who could rescue him from death. And God heard his prayers because of his deep reverence from God. So I want to make a note here. We're going to jump over to something uh, in the book of Matthew. But l- look at what it says. It says he heard his prayers because of his deep reverence for God. Right? So Jesus is pleading. He's crying out. He's asking for something to be moved. And he is heard. But let's look at what it means to be heard. All right? So Matthew chapter 26, Matthew illustrates this exact moment is what I believe the writer of Hebrews is talking about. So Jesus came with them, he's talking about his disciples, to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, you sit here while I go over there and pray. So Jesus is praying. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee with him and he began to have much sorrow and a heavy heart. And then he said to them, my soul is very sad. My soul is so full of sorrow, I am ready to die. If any of you struggle with depression, just this overwhelming depression, Jesus sympathizes with you. Look at what he's saying here. He's saying, my soul is overwhelmed, and I am ready to die, and you stay here and watch with me. So he went on a little further, and he got down with his face on the ground, and he prayed, my father, if it can be done, take away what is before me. What Jesus is asking here is, if there's any other way, God, if I don't have to go to the cross, if I don't have to experience that separation from you, if I don't have to bear their sins, then let it be. Remember, Jesus is heard. But what does he say here? He says, but even so, not what I want, but you, what you want. 
Jesus was not relieved from the situation. God didn't send all of his angels down and say, oh, Jesus is overwhelmed. Let's go save him. Let's go rescue him. Let's go pull him out of this moment. The, the Roman soldiers that are on their way to arrest him, let's go kill them and knock them down. Let's set up some kind of safe haven where we can hide Jesus so he doesn't have to go through the pain of the crucifixion. But isn't that what we ask for in our prayers? When we're praying to be removed from a situation, to have an illness healed, or to have some uh, relationship restored, or whatever it might be, aren't we asking God, take this away from me? I don't want this. But how often do we end our prayer with, but not your, or not my will, but your will be done? Are we truly submissive to what God's will is for our life? Because his will might take us through some pain as it did Jesus. But it doesn't mean that God didn't love him, that God didn't hear him. God heard him, and what God gave him was the mercy and the grace to come out of this situation. Because what you find as you read through the rest of this account as Jesus is heading to the cross is what? Peace. Jesus has an overwhelming amount of peace, so much so that when he's hanging on the cross, he looks down at those that are mocking him, and he says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. If that was me on that cross, I'd probably be spitting on them. But because he has so much peace, he's able to go through what he needs to endure. So we'll finish this. He went a little further and got down with his face on the ground. And he prayed, my father, if it can be done, again, take away what is before me. Then he came to the followers and he found them sleeping. He said to Peter, were you not able to watch with me one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not be tempted. That's an important uh, instruction there from Jesus, that we need to pray against temptation. But man's spirit is willing, but the body does not have the power to do it. He went away again the second time and he prayed, saying, My father, if this must happen to me, may whatever you want be done. He came and found them asleep again. Their eyes were heavy, and he went away from them the third time and prayed the same prayer. And then he came to his followers and asked them, Are you still sleeping and getting your rest? As I speak, the time has come when the Son of Man will be handed over to sinners. Get up and let us go. See, the man who will hand me over is near. So Jesus relates with us in, his, in our weakness. And he was heard because of his reverence as some, Reverent all for God and his submission to God's plan. And God didn't change his situation. God didn't remove the pain that he was going through. And I would say this, that if you are living in this life and you feel that comfort is something that God is going to give you, right, that you will not go through pain, I would say that you are living in an illusion. Pain is inevitable. But I was sitting with a pastor this week talking with him about some different things, and he, he gave me this illustration. He said, pain is different than hurt. Pain is way different than hurt because pain is something that is actually good for us. It can bring growth for us. I mean, think about the last time if you've ever had surgery, all right? The surgeon is going to inflict pain on you. He's going to inflict pain, but his purpose is not to hurt you. His purpose is to heal you, restore you. Pain is a good thing. Pain brings about growth, right? Anytime we have to grow, typically there is pain involved, but we learn through it. I'll give you an example of this, somewhat humorous, I guess, but maybe for you, not so much for me. So I'm in my mid-30s now, uh, fast-tracking towards my late 30s, and I'm finding out that uh, my, my metabolism is slowing down. People that are older than me told me this would happen, and I didn't believe them, but it's now happening. So I can't eat whatever I want to eat anymore. Like, I used to like to eat at night, 
like a second dinner, I guess you would call it, like 8.30, 9 o'clock. And I'm realizing, all right, if I, if I want to stay at a reasonable weight here, I'm going to have to stop doing that. Uh, I can't drink soda like I used to, start drinking a lot more water, which doesn't taste as good, but it's better for me. And so one of the things that I started doing was my wife suggested to me, not, I don't think she meant it that I needed to, but she just said she works out and she has this video that she works out to follows along on the screen. And she said, hey, you know, if you want to, you could, you could join me. And so I was thinking, huh, this is going to be easy because I'll give you some context. Uh, I was in high school, in college, I used to spend like 15 to 20 hours a week in a gym. So working out to me is not something that used to be hard, but now I guess it is harder because, uh, so I, I did this video with her and I didn't think it was going to be hard. So I left, like I was in my clothes from work. So I had my khakis still on and like a dress shirt like this. I'm like, this is going to be easy. 30 minutes of this workout. There's no weights involved. Where are the weights? There's no, there's no weights. So this is going to be easy. So I get down on the floor and I start doing this, this workout. And it's all to work your core, your, your midsection area. And I was like 10 minutes into this thing and my, <laughs> I'm sweating profusely. All right. There's sweat dripping off my nose. And there's always in these videos, there's like three or four people that are working out and there's like the experienced person and then there's the like beginner person who's like doing push-ups on their knees because they can't do, you know, the regular push-ups. Well, I find myself 10 minutes in the video, I'm following the beginner lady. Like, I'm like, how is this happening to me? I'm following the girl who can't do the exercises right. And so I, <laughs> I was going through pain. Now, I, I bring this illustration to light because the next morning, I felt pain in areas that I hadn't felt pain in some time, you know, in my back and in, in my midsection. And I was thinking, well, this is ridiculous. But was that pain good for me? Absolutely. That pain is strengthening me. Those muscles will come back stronger. If I stay with it, I might look like the guy in the video. But I, I realized, though, that this pain, all right, has to happen. It's not a bad thing. And in our culture, we're so adverse to pain. We want comfort so much that we're so adverse to pain that we try to run from it at all costs. But there are times when we have to go through pain, and God is leading us through that. So in times of hurt and in times of anxiety, in our prayer life, are we saying this? This is my question to you, our invitation. Are we saying, God, your will be done, but not mine? Your will be done, but not mine. Look at verse 8 here. Even though Jesus was God's son, he learned obedience from the things he suffered. I cannot wrap my mind around how the son of God had to learn things, but he learned it through suffering. So the suffering you are experiencing may be God teaching you something. But we have to have this mindset of your will be done, not mine. In this way, God qualified himself or him as a perfect high priest and he became the source, singular. Jesus is the source of our eternal salvation. So God has not comforted us to ease or he has not promised us ease or comfort. He's promised us that he will walk through the trials with us, that he won't leave us and that he will make our faith stronger and that we will grow in our faith when we can go through these obstacles and go with him. So as you face these obstacles or trials in your life, I would ask you, what are you expecting to find from God? Are you expecting that God will relieve you or remove you from the situation? Are you expecting that you will find mercy and grace to get through the situation? Because that's what he's promised us. I want to leave you with uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse 11 here. 
This is Paul, the Apostle Paul. He's writing to the church in Colossae, and he says, I pray that God's great power will make you strong. So he's writing to the church, and he's saying, I pray that God will make you strong, and that you will have joy as you wait and do not give up. This is talking about endurance. In another translation, it talks about endurance in this passage. But we do not give up, and that God would give us joy. If we are enduring something, and we're not giving up, all right, when I'm sitting on a beach and I'm reading a book, and the the sky is beautiful, and the sun is out, I'm not enduring that. That's not something I have to endure, right? Because it's, it's enjoyable, it's pleasurable, right? But what Paul is getting at here is that we're going to need power, we're going to need strength, and that we would have joy, and that we would not give up through this trial of things called life, the thing called life, that we would not give up, and we would be able to experience joy. And so I give you this encouragement as we end, that I can approach God. You can approach God on the merits of Jesus Christ because Jesus has understood our weakness and he's gone before us and he intercedes for us. And when we go boldly to the throne of grace, we will receive mercy and we will find grace because we are his children. Let us pray. God, I want to give you praise. I want to thank you for who you are. I want to thank you that you have called us your sons and your daughters. Lord, I want to thank you for your mercy and your grace. And Lord, I ask that you would, exactly what Paul prayed for there, that we would have the strength to endure this life, this race that you've called us to. And Lord, will you fill our hearts with joy as we do it. May we remember and fix our eyes on Jesus and the joy set before us. May we know that when we finish this race called life, that what waits for us is rest, eternal rest with you. Lord, help us to stay focused on that. So as the trials come and as the temptations come and as the enemy speaks to us, may we only remember the words that you have spoken to us, that we are your children. I pray that in Jesus' holy name. Amen.